Today on In Good Faith, we're doing one of our favorite episodes, which are panel discussions where we get to invite people from the community in and share their experiences. I always learn from these, and I got to get some people today that I'm really excited to hear from. I'm going to briefly introduce everyone. Preetha Lal is a mom, a homemaker, a systems thinker, a writer, a podcaster, and is currently pursuing certification towards becoming a life coach. And she's lived in Springville, Utah for over two decades. Preetha, thank you so much for coming in today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Mesa Kerge, a mother of four, a grandmother to two, and she mentioned today two and a half now, used to teach math at Salt Lake Community College for 15 years. She sits on the Holiday Interfaith Council in the Salt Lake Valley, as well as manages and runs the Islamic Speakers Bureau. She volunteers her time teaching and for 10 years was at the women's prison teaching and helping local refugees. Thank you for having me today. Pastor Luke Miller moved to the community from South Carolina. He is the pastor at the Living Water Mennonite Church and Christian Ministry, and they've got a brand new church in Provo, Utah, that if you're in town, you should go see. It's a beautiful building. Pastor Miller, thank you so much. It's good to be here. Trevin Hatch is the Anthropology, Ancient, Near East, Middle East, and Religious Studies Specialist at the Lee Library here at Brigham Young University. He's an author of several books. One is A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew, and co-edited with Leonard Greenspoon, the Jewish Studies Chair at Creighton University, the volume The Learning of the Jews, What Latter-day Saints Can Learn from Jewish Religious Experience. Trevin, thanks for making time. Happy to be here. So, one of the things I wonder about, our topic today is avoiding us versus them. Especially in faith, we're hopefully not going to get into politics today that tends to creep around the edges of almost everything. But I wonder if each of you would maybe just take a minute and tell me if you've experienced that. Maybe what causes us versus them? Have you seen it in maybe your own congregation or the community or in the nation? Yeah, I, I guess for myself, as I think about our, the way that we have been created, as God has created us, God has created us as in His image, which essentially means that we are we are people of choice. And so I think it's very important that we respect each other from that standpoint. No, we don't always believe the same. We don't always practice things the same. But because we are part of God's creation, He takes glory in His creation. And so because of that, I can respect other people because of who they are, not necessarily because of what they believe. In terms of us versus them, your question, I think the reason we get into that zone is because innately we're different. We look different on the outside. Intrinsically, we are not, but on the outside, we appear to be. Mm. <clears throat> Whether it's the way we dress or the way we are, the way we behave, the choices we make. And so given individually, we are very used to our own universe when we see something that is unfamiliar, just coming from a systems thinker's perspective, change is hard. And to accept that change innately is also hard. And so just to answer your question of why we face it, and given I'm from India, land of diversity in every way, shape and form, that is, I think, the primarily the reason is because we focus on the differences we have because they are just more visual than what we have in common that's more internal. I don't feel like I personally have a them versus us mentality, even though I do look different. I wear a scarf in public, and so people might feel I'm very different. But I choose to act like I'm not, and eventually people accept me for who I am and realize we are not different. So I'll mention my, without getting too nerdy, I jotted a few notes to trigger my memory, but I, one of the names I jotted down was Vamek Vulcan. He's, a, he's my favorite, one of my favorite scholars to read, and he's a political psychologist and a four-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee. And he writes, he's written books for 40 years on regional conflicts. Mm. And one of the books he wrote was called The Need to Have Enemies and Allies. There's a psychological need that, that we, as individuals or communities, without even realizing it, we size each other up and we say, oh, that's the other person. And he talks a lot about the reason why he was a Nobel Peace Prize nominee is because he's dealing with communities like the Greeks and Turkish people or Israelis and Palestinians, 
um, Portuguese and Spanish, all these different communities that have had conflict, and it's usually with their neighbors. I always thought that people would have the enemy be the one they don't really know. I didn't think it would be your neighbor, but someone that you're ignorant about. And that's why I like to teach people so that there wouldn't be that fear or... Yeah, that's certainly there. And I think some of the issues he brings up are people like Sunnis and Shiites or tell my students, who's writing critical literature about Latter-day Saints? It's not Buddhists. It's people like evangelical Christians where we share the same space geographically and ideologically. So there's certain, certainly people that we're very unfamiliar with if they come into our space and we get nervous. Yeah, I think both are true. Ah. So I am from a community that is known, like if you ask about the Latter-day Saint community, yes, they send out missionaries and try to convert the world. And that almost sets up an us versus them. I think everyone wants to share what's important to them, but are there ways that that we do that better so that it is sharing rather than, I intend for you to change what you do and do it more like me? Have you seen how that can work? So as people, we're very relational, and I think we serve a relational God. So I think it goes a long way when we can come not prejudge somebody before we actually get to know them, and we actually build relationship with them in a way that is actually God-honoring, in a way that actually makes them feel like they have value. Because when we come at people and try to cut down their core beliefs or cut down who they are, it's, we just, it just closes the door for that conversation to flow and actually learn from each other. Mm. I have several experiences around this, but they all stem into one thing. I have been fortunate to have many missionaries come to our door. And when I have opened the door, I've said I've been a student at the Y here. I follow my own faith. And the moment we started talking and I said, I know why you're here. And I really love and appreciate what you're doing. First of all, before if it's summer, then you've got to have a drink. Secondly, <laughs> I'm going to send a picture to your mom. This was before they could contact their moms more than on Mother's Day. And what is interesting is they were just so receptive and they wanted to know what I'm doing. And I, was, I wanted to know where they're from. And it was a very easy conversation and precisely what you said, Steve, because no one was trying to impose anything on one another. We were just trying to connect relationally, like Pastor Luke said. Mm. So, yeah, if you connect to the basic goodness in an individual, everything else just falls in place. In my faith, we don't have, per se, a mission, going on a mission. But the word for missionary in Islam is called dawah. Dawah means an invitation. So we like to invite people to learn and understand our faith, but not necessarily forced to convert or that's not the goal. Let's put it that way. So if they were inspired and they want to join, we're happy to receive them. But if they don't, we're very happy to accept them and respect them for their choices and their lifestyle. Yeah. And I have to say that in Salt Lake City, I've been invited to iftar meals during Ramadan. And by the way, Thank you for the sacrifice you're making to do this while you're fasting during these days. <laughs> it's, it's no problem. We're used to it. It's... <laughs> okay. And also, I've been very welcomed after uh, Pastor Luke Miller was a guest on the show previously. But after that interview, my wife and I realized how close we lived to where you were meeting as you were building the church, but meeting in a house. And so we felt so welcome when we arrived to attend services and really appreciated that. And then we came to a potluck and what we had was applesauce because my wife makes it. And the first thing the lady said was, did you know that's a Mennonite thing? We always have applesauce. And the welcome that I got was, it was, I think, perfectly done. Well done. We just felt so happy being there. Oh, praise God. That's how we want people to feel. I think that's how we all should feel when we come into each other's presence. You mentioned the scarf, Mesa wearing one. And there was an imam who we spoke with last year who said that someone that he knew, a woman had been on a bus and someone just walked up to this lady who was wearing the scarf, the attire, and said, forgive me, but said, you live in the U.S., you don't have to do that, which just has all kinds of assumptions. And of course, the lady knew that. But that leads me to my question. Are there things in your faith that 
are obvious. Like you mentioned, Pritha, we size each other up mm-hmm. sometimes in an instant by the first thing we see or hear. Um, how do we avoid that? That What is it like when, because of the way you talk or what you wear, it's obvious to people you are of a particular faith? It's unavoidable, honestly. It happens all the time. I wonder what that lady told him, but had he told me that, I would have said, exactly, we live in the U.S. and we have the freedom to practice our faith and to choose to wear a scarf, whereas if you're in Paris, in France, where they've banned the scarf, Mm. I don't know if people felt like it was an attack on other people's faiths. I don't know why in Paris they have an issue with others practicing their faiths, but that's the whole point in the U.S., right? You have the freedom to practice your faith. And the beauty in the U.S., anybody who is wearing a scarf, you can be assured it's by choice. They're not being forced to do it. They want to do it. One of the the discussions I have with my tour groups, occasionally I'll take a tour group to Israel, and the very first day on the bus, because I've had this experience where we go throughout two weeks and somebody will almost always say, or their facial expression, or they'll do something where they're expressing rejection or or I don't like this, this seems dark or or something like that. And I'll say what you're really saying is we have the truth, this is God, and then everything else is either of men or worse, it's of Satan. That's the implication. Oh, boy. That's not a, a place you want to be in. And when I say that, people, sh- they nod their heads. They shake their heads and they nod and they say they, they're in agreement. But inevitably, somebody will see some Orthodox Jews with the black hat types with all of the clothes on. And they'll say, I thought Jesus did away with all this religious minutia. And as a Jewish study scholar, my ears perk up and I say, well, did Jesus really say this? What are they doing? Did Jews know that Jesus said that? It's a little more, more nuanced. And they're following God the way they think they should follow God. But that's an example from when we travel. And I thought of Mark Twain. Yes. Travel is fatal to to prejudice. Think of that every time Mm. I take folks over there. I'm wondering if you've seen things change over time, any of you, in in people knowing more, tending to know more, and be more open to interacting with people of other faiths. Have you seen that happen or not happen? I I think I have have seen that, and people— as people are more exposed to other cultures and other religions and other people, other ways of believing or thinking, because we all, we often interpret life through our experience. Yeah. We've had a certain amount, number of experiences in our life, and we see somebody else doing something different than what we would do. It We often judge them through that our life experience and our studies and what we, instead of actually always going, just going over them, asking them a question. So, tell me about your faith or why you're doing this. And I think we too often, we miss a lot of opportunities in actually building bridges or actually speaking into the lives of other people because we're too quick just to be judgmental and say, that's not where I am. I think you brought up a real key, which is willingness to be curious and ask questions. I think sometimes we don't out of fear. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Will I offend someone? And for instance, Mennonites sometimes are recognized by their dress. How does it feel to you if someone says, can you tell me why this is the tradition? Oh, I'm more than glad to open that conversation or continue on with that conversation. It is something that we face. I know we we don't necessarily fit in in, in mainstream society, We our, especially our sisters look different. But we also recognize and appreciate the freedom that we have to practice our, yeah, our beliefs. And as we look at scripture, as we look at the Bible, to us, we see that the principle of modesty. So the way our we dress is not necessarily based off of what's what the latest trends are. It's based off the Word of God, and we recognize with that that there are a lot of different ways of practice. And so this is one way that we feel is God honoring, and then we appreciate when people are, are ask the ask those questions instead of just assuming we're some radical this or that. We're, we just love Jesus and we follow the Word. I <laughs> so agree so. with you. I run the Speakers Bureau, and my neighbors invited me 10 years after living in that neighborhood, and I'm really very active in my neighborhood. And they asked me to do a presentation on Islam, and at the end of the presentation, we had Q&A. I got over 100 questions on little 
nuances and things. And I just looked at them. I said, I'm happy you came out of your shell and asked. But <laughs> we go on hikes all the time, and you've never asked these questions. They're like, oh, we don't want to be rude. I'm like, no, please be rude. It's not rude. Just ask the questions. We're happy to share. I, so, Sorry. Go ahead. <clears throat> I completely think in the 25 years that I've been in this valley, moved, I've been in Springville for 23 of those 25 years, there's been a huge change. The vending machine selling Coke in BYU. <laughs> I graduated in 2000. No vending machines selling Coke in BYU. But the point is, my little girl, for the last 10 years, actually, no, for the last eight years, she makes these little lamps during Diwali, which is our Hindu festival of light. And she would give it to a couple of her friends, maybe one of her teachers. Now, it has grown to the point where she gives it to many more of her teachers and several of her friends. And they all not just receive it with so much grace and love, but they light it on Diwali because they ask me, Preeta, when are you going to light it? So we light it. They light it at that night. They send me pictures. But moving on further, there are other friends who make their own lamps, get their own little candles, and they're not of the Hindu faith. So what that tells me is communication has helped immensely. And we have been able to create a safe space where people can ask those hundred questions, like Mesa said. And that the representation of spiritual light is, precisely, is common. Precisely. And mm. when you talk about the was it the seven virgins with the lights when they go to the, the bridegroom, lamps, yes. my favorite LDS painting. And what Pastor Luke mentioned, the experience. COVID itself, for all the bad things it has done, <laughs> it has also drawn people closer at a very deep level of knowing what is important. And while we were all home in our separate places across the world, we fell back on certain things. And as it's all filtering out, I personally find I can connect to more people because we've been through a bad time together. And that that bound us in its own a deeper way. So I completely concur on that experience thing. It's a huge thing. Yeah, common suffering can bind people. That's why family vacations make us closer. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's all not all pretty and positive all the time. I prefer to bind over a good meal. I'm <laughs> There's a key. From my perspective of someone, as an, of an insider here in the Latter-day Saint Utah culture, I've been pleasantly surprised just even a week ago when we had Holy Week. Mm. And for decades, and even more than a century, Latter-day Saints haven't done anything or very little with Holy Week, last week of Jesus' life and all those symbols. But Eric Huntsman and I, Eric Huntsman, Dr. Eric Huntsman is the director of the BYU Jerusalem Center, and he and I wrote this book recently on Holy Week. And we weren't sure, what we wanted to do was to help Latter-day Saints feel more, a deeper connection with this week because historically we've pushed everything away that was remotely Catholic. The, the symbols, Lent, Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, we just pushed all that away and we just cruise through the week, have an Easter egg hunt, go to grandma's house for a meal and that's the extent of it for many families. So we decided to put this book together where we give the different events that happened with Jesus each day and then we give a little scholarship but the section that people and people like those but the section that people seem to really like is the small section on cr Christian traditions how Christians have traditionally celebrated or observed this particular day and it's gotten so much not the book but these ideas where we podcasters and people even the general authorities of the church in their general conference last week were mentioning this left and right and this groundswell where people were excited and i had my own congregation say hey why don't you do your i do a little holy week last supper meal is what i call it for my family and they said why don't you do it with our congregation we had 200 people show up and we had people coming and making Ukrainian eggs, decorative eggs that have certain symbols and certain meanings and pretzels that have a certain Christian meaning, hot cross buns, Lazarus cakes, all this different food. And we invited a local Catholic woman who has a master's of divinity to talk about the stations of the cross and Advent or uh, Lent and people are loving it. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is good. I, you know, in fact, it got so popular that people, few people in the media we're asking, what's the motive here? Are you guys really trying to do this because you're trying to fit into mainstream Christian society? So then I had to comment, it's like, this is what I think is happening. And it's, I'm really pleasantly surprised about how we are 
not so scared of other people's traditions. You are listening to In Good Faith. This is a panel discussion on avoiding us versus them thinking. In Good Faith, we'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Today is a panel discussion about us versus them thinking. This is not a how-to, this is a how-not-to. And our guests today are Preetha Lal, Mesa Kerge, Pastor Luke Miller, and Trevin Hatch. Thank you again all for being here. And I'm wondering, the whole idea of minority, majority, any place you live, you're going to religiously, faith-speaking in most places, not completely homogenous. And I wonder if, especially some of you who have been in, or maybe we all have been in a position where we were in the minority, how you relate to the majority faith. And then if you've been in the majority, how have you related to those in the minority? Any thoughts or stories on that? I would like to take this one. I remember in the Interfaith Council, somebody would complain and say, it sucks to be a minority in Utah. <laughs> and I look at him and I say, you know what? It's awesome being a minority in Utah. It just sucks to be a minority, period. And you just haven't experienced it before. I've experienced it almost everywhere I've gone. And so I find it refreshing being a minority in Utah compared to other states, let alone other countries. So it's all relative. I would, I love this concept of minority majority simply because it's all relative to take on from what Mesa said. I haven't talked too much about my faith, but I am a Hindu. But I, within the Hinduism, I follow the Ramakrishna, Vivekananda philosophy of Vedanta that we talked about, Steve, when we last talked. And what it is, is it talks to the divinity that is potentially alive in every human being irrespective of who you are. And you spend your life trying to manifest that divinity through actions, through your work, etc. So with this premise, I grew up in Kuwait. We were a minority there. It's an Islamic state. The five times the mosque next door would have the azan come on, my mom, she gave me the most beautiful analogy. She goes, there was a five times you can think of God too. So it is. it was never bothersome. You're allowed to think of God. Imagine that, right? And if it came on, it was never bothersome because my mom said, what a beautiful discipline is that. So that, that was, and then I went back to India. India is very diverse. We have various faiths existing in different ways. And then I come here after I got married. Again, I go to BYU. Again, I'm a minority here. But this is where I wanted to talk about the concept of fitting in and belonging. Mm. Sometimes you don't necessarily have to fit in. I'm sitting across this table. I'm wearing a sari, a bindi. I may not fit in, but do I belong? Heck yes, I do. Yeah. Because we're talking about similar things. And what I've found in my 52 years <laughs> is that we belong more than we think we do. Because since we're always worried about fitting in, we don't go a little bit deeper and think what we do belong. If we can extend that belongingness to another person, and make them feel that they belong to, it's very mutual. I've had young women from the Relief Society come into my home, and we've had a night of Indian food and attire. They've put on my clothes and taken pictures. Did we fit in? Maybe not, but did we belong? Forever. Mm. This yeah. is so, why I love, love, love that the U.S., I don't know, is it logo or philosophy that used to be... Um, uh, we are a melting pot has changed to a tossed salad. <laughs> so I love that. That's what they teach now in schools that we the U.S. is a tossed salad. Mm -hmm. We are different, mm -hmm. but it takes those differences to make something delicious. Correct. We don't want to be always blah the same thing every yeah. day. You want to yeah. have. You have the variety. You have to. And have that's the what that we're in, That's where I come from. So it's kind of part of who I am. But I find that refreshing when you can speak to that and receive that. And I've loved stories I've heard from people from India who said, during Ramadan, we sent these certain foods over to our exactly. neighbors. Exactly. During our festival, they made 
our traditional foods and sent oh, their kids it, over it's with It's so with seamless. Them. It is so seamless. Diwali, Eid, it's all seamless. Just a reason to celebrate. Mm. We celebrate every month because there is some faith <laughs> celebrating something, so we are celebrating. So, yeah. I think being a minority is actually good for a person, and everybody <laughs> should experience it sometime because what it does, it, it, it brings us some, often brings us to where we actually start asking questions. When we're the majority, we can just go with the flow, and when our leaders say do this, it's pretty easy just to... That's just what's accepted, so that you just do it. When you're a minority or a, and you're not, you don't go with the flow. You have to often think a little bit deeper, maybe, and say, well, like, why? So why am I where I am? Why do I believe what I believe? Yeah. And is there because purpose and meaning? Because people ask you a yeah. lot of questions, yeah, that's right? right? So you have to know your faith to answer you people's to, questions. You have to be ready to answer those questions. So it actually is good for our faith that way in our quest for truth. That, that as we're approached with things that are different than what we believe or different than how we would practice it, we actually look at those things and say, is that what God wants for me? Is that truth? I often tell people that it doesn't really matter what you, th a lot of people say, well, I believe it, so it must be true. That's not necessarily true. <laughs> truth is truth, and we choose to believe it or we choose not to believe it. And we're on this quest to understand God and understand truth, and God is truth. So, It doesn't always matter what a person believes as much as that he's seeking God to, and God is open to God to allow God to show him truth mm -hmm. so that we actually can follow him. So in a lot of ways, minorities, it's a blessing to be a minority. Jesus gives us this concept of the broad way and the narrow way. There's, and he's very clear there's only a few that will find it. And the broad way leads to destruction. The narrow way leads to life everlasting. And there again, we come to that place in our lives. Where we, or it's good. We need to come to a place in our lives where we're wrestling with truth, and we're wrestling with what's right and what's wrong, and what where does God want me? How can I actually bring glory to Him? We don't always like being in the middle of a wrestle. <laughs> we like to have everything all figured out. But I think that's a part of maturing is to, to it is. be willing to experience. That. It is, yeah. and without the valley experiences, we don't have mountains. Uh, so you have to have valleys that. to have mountains. And I like how you, I like how you said that the way you put it, where uh, you know, minority as a minority, it forces you to ask questions, not just about the majority group, but about yourself. At least that's what I understood you're saying. And yeah, it's it's good for your identity development. The time that I felt the most proud, I guess, of my family situation were my, when we were living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and my kids were in a school where they were like one of only three white kids in the whole, in the whole class. And I'm thinking, this is great. They're going to learn a lot. And they're, they're first, second, third grade. But they just thrived. And I would go on their little field trips. And I'm thinking, I love this. I didn't know I was going to come back to Utah. And I was hoping, I, I would have loved to stay there for another five years. And I'm just thinking of another, so a time when I was in When I was in Israel once, it was in a Hebrew university, and I'm thinking about my identity because I go out there to study and all the people are coming in the class on the first day. And this guy from Austria, he comes in and he's going around the room, hey, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm Trevin Hatcher, I'm from Utah. And he's got this big smile and he says, are you a Mormon? But it was, my mind was like, oh, he doesn't like me. <laughs> okay, and I said, yeah, I'm a Mormon. And so immediately I was thrust into this situation in my mind where, oh, okay, you know, I've got to figure out how to respond and communicate with people and why, and now I'm insecure. Why is he laughing at me? He's heard all this <laughs> stuff and I don't mind talking about my faith, but that was really a f stressful but fun experience throughout that semester. You made me think of a cute little story. So usually people would ask, where are you from? Mm. And it always bothered me. And I would come up with, I'm from California, but then they'll go, where are you really from? <laughs> and so I was sharing this actually here at BYU in one of the classes when I came to lecture, and one of the students opened my eyes. He goes, when we ask you where you're from, it's not to make you feel un-American. It's because we're trying to connect to you. We're trying to find something in common. Maybe you say it's a country and we visited it. Or you say a country and we have friends from there. We're just trying to connect. And once I realized that, now I answer the question right away. I'm like, my mom is from Syria, my dad's from Lebanon, but I've lived most of my life in the U.S. And it does. It opens up the doors and people feel good about it. And I feel good about it. It it brings this, the, there's a verse in the Quran that says, and God has created you into nations and tribes so that you may get to know one another. That's the whole purpose why we're all different. Not to make us all the same again, but 
to get along and to find our commonalities and to enjoy our differences. So that's the beauty of, I think, the diversity in America. That what you just said is actually leads into something I wanted to get to, which is talking about there is a society called the Golden Rule Society. And we all have it. Yeah. And you go through religion by religion and that philosophy. And I wonder, could we, you just mentioned in Islam, in the Quran, that particular scripture. That's the verse. But the golden rule comes from a hadith, says, love for your brother what you love for yourself. Ah. Isn't that what the golden rule is about? Yeah. I wonder if we could talk about where that appears in, in, in scripture or in teaching. And if you want to jump in on that. Yeah, so that's one thing I love about what Jesus taught when he said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good. And Jesus gives all these different concepts that are, he takes, he refers to the Old Testament law and he says, or the old the Moses law, and he says, you've heard this, but I say unto you. So he gives us a lot of new concepts of how we actually need to live and mm-hmm. love. I think love is right at the very core of that. When we recognize that we're created in God's image, that people, that we actually win when we love. We don't win fighting. <laughs> and that whole concept of loving is just... Okay, I'll buy that bumper sticker if you make it. <laughs> yeah. But it just it radically changes how we view people. When it's us versus them, it's always, we're always judging people according to our standards and what we think is right. But when we have the love of God in our hearts... That, and God has changed our heart and our life, it totally changes how we view other people. And now, even if they don't believe the same, even if they don't look the same, I still treat them out of a heart of love, a passionate love, and it will drastically change the way I do business with people, the way I handle myself out in the public with people when I'm having discussions with people. Because I see value in you because of that concept of love. I have found religious people have that quality. Did you get the chance to attend the the Parliament the of Parliament Religion? Parliament of Religion. Yeah. That was the most amazing experience I had. We had, it was at the Salt Palace, and it was all these people from Utah and all over the world. And one of the most amazing things I participated in there was Langar. Am I saying the that right? Sikh. The yeah, Sikh. Yeah, the Sikh Langar. Langar. And so the Sikhs flew in from all over the world to cook and fed everybody at that program. And I think it was 10,000 oh, plus huge. people meals three <laughs> times a day. And the Muslims decided to be the ones serving it. Let me tell you, that is backbreaking because you hold the pot and you're <laughs> leaning over as people were sitting on the floor to eat. But still, what an experience. And I heard they do this. Locally all the time. All the time. And they do it in India all the time. The, so it's the beautiful. Sikhs are famous for their langars mm-hmm. simply because it's open for all. It's never ending. And it is, a, it is they do it out of complete and humble service. The spirit of service, there's un, it's uncompar- incomparable. It's mm-hmm. just amazing. But speaking of the parliament of religion and the, your previous the thing that you were talking about, the golden rule, so Swami Vivekananda, in 1893, he was invited to come and he spoke there. And the first thing he said is brothers and sisters of America. And he received a resounding applause that lasted several minutes. And I think with that one one phrase, he created a spirit of oneness. So where I come from in my faith, or if, if my scriptures, if I were to go back, I would just go to two words. One is the concept of oneness, which basically means everyone around this table and everyone in every part of the world has the same spark of divinity within you. And so once you recognize that, you and I are not very different, basically. And also in the Upanishads, there is a phrase called Vasudheva Kutumbakam, which means the world is your home. So when you take those two in context, it is very hard to see those differences. So what I found over time is that there is a slight difference between being religious and being spiritual. And sometimes within our religiosity, with our traditions, we can even get into the spaces where we see the differences. But when we rise above that and we're being spiritual, then you're appealing to that golden rule and it's universal. I don't know of any faith who would not agree with it or does not practice Mm -hmm. it. So, yeah, that's where I'm coming from when you talk about that. 
It's such a seems like such a simple concept. Treat others as you don't want to be treated, and mm-hmm. but I mean, it would change the world, but it's difficult to implement. We know, at least Pastor Luke talked about how Jesus he really emphasized this, and it's also all over the Hebrew prophets. It's in Leviticus 19. It's even ancient rabbis, Rabbi Hillel and Yochanan ben Zakkai. These people preached this and talked about it, Rabbi Kiva, and it sounds like it's in the Quran as well, and there's many other places. It's being emphasized everywhere, but it seems to be the hardest just innately to say, oh, here's, especially in our culture, not to get political, but the the U.S. culture where there's one political party over here and one political party over there, and we are somehow conditioned and trained to be ideological and black and white thinking, to take our corners and say, we have truth, and you guys are, you guys don't have truth. But I don't know how to, it's a constant battle. But yeah, if we could just shout this from the rooftops, this concept, <laughs> yes. somehow. Rabbi Sam Spector in Salt Lake put it really succinctly for me when he said, God said that he created all of us and that we are good. And see, he said, if I can't see holiness in the people around me, to me that's blasphemy because they have the image of God in them. So I really love that that is a common thing, and I guess we just need to do – I sometimes think that – okay, I'm going to use your politics example mm-hmm. for a second with great trepidation, <laughs> <laughs> which is sometimes I heard a particular senator from a particular state where I live once say politics is sports for old people, and I wish we would be less – sports influence. This is my team. That's your team. Win or lose, rah, 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 and more influenced by what we've just been talking about, which are the actual teachings of the faiths. And I think the actual experiences we have when we really get to know people. Thank you all for kind of reaching into your traditions to to share that. Stephen, I've got a question if I, and if it's too long and we can cut it out, but I'm wondering with my my guests, my co-guests, is what do you do with people who are insiders who then turn outsiders? They leave your community or they, for mm-hmm. us here, we have people who leave the LDS church and, they're, and they immediately become... Uh, Haters? Yeah, and from their perspective, sometimes they say, I had all these friends in my neighborhood, they won't talk to me, never asked me what the problem was, just lost a lot of friends. Some people have lost... If they had a certain business, local business, they've lost. So what about that? How do we, and I know how we have treated people who are of the post-Mormon or ex-Mormon or nuanced Mormon, whatever the term is, and what they say and what other people say about them. Because this is our God's truth, and you're just simply outside of God's truth. I'm just curious, what about that? In your faith community, how that dynamic works and how to tackle that? So within Hinduism, if somebody were to become a Christian, that is not something I've encountered. But I have encountered mixed religious marriages, mixed mm-hmm. religion marriages. And they're just an individual living their life, living their faith, whether they've chosen to convert or not convert is entirely their own. But I have had, I do have friends in the Mormon community who have left the church. And they have faced a lot of sadness because of that. And we've had long conversations on this. And I think when I look at it from the outside, and people are very, very feel comfortable confiding in me because I'm a very impartial third party <laughs> listener. So family members from both sides have sometimes spoken. But I think the reason why that becomes a dissonance is because somewhere we take the standards of religion to define that individual. And if they are not following those standards, that individual is no longer worthy of that respect. And so for me personally, we follow this concept of serving man. We serve God when we serve man. So if God resides in us, then no matter what faith they're following, that is what defines them, not the singularity of it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's where, but... I guess it's like yeah. when we discipline little kids and we say... The action is bad. The kid is not bad. I guess I have to think about why do we respond in certain ways when people leave our faith or leave and go a different direction. And that can get, it can get ugly sometimes because often what we're telling them is that I know the truth and you don't. And 
that could be right or wrong. I'm not here to say that's one way or the other way. But the reality is God has created us as creatures with choice. Like we all have choice. And so we need to respect, if nothing else, at least respect each other to that extent that they have the right and they have the choices. They can make those choices and I can honor them as somebody who is created in God's image. I really believe that our places of worship are, as we follow God, what we have to offer needs to be something that is so attractive that we're not just pushing people, like when people leave, that we're not working from a premise that if we let our young people interact, or if we interact mm-hmm. with them, they're going to influence us. And right. but no, we need to be we need to be anchored in our faith in Jesus. We need to be anchored in our faith in Christ. So as I encounter those that do maybe leave the faith, I still want them to re- recognize that I love them, God loves them very deeply, and I'm still here to serve and to reach and to speak into their life. Yeah, and that their worth as a person has not changed. Mm-hmm. Their beliefs change or mm-hmm. circumstances mm-hmm. change. And what matters is how we act and react. We have to still follow our faith and be kind and be good and non-judgmental because in Islam, the word judgment is such a big deal that it's only God who has the right to judge us. As humans, we don't have the right to judge others. And so if we can just suspend that judgment and let God decide these things and God is merciful and God is forgiving, we need to also be merciful and yeah, forgiving. So, so often we're judging them according to how we believe and say, I'm right and you're wrong. But isn't when, in our belief the idea yeah. of being kind and yeah, yeah. non-judgmental? And, but we should actually be looking into our own heart and saying, what have I done wrong? What am I doing what am I doing that actually pushes that person? Why are they not feeling loved? Why do they not feel accepted? What's making them take that step? It should be <laughs> reconciling those things in our own heart before we go try to... Oh, go ahead. I had just two words that had come up across the table several times as right and truth. Mm-hmm. I think when we talk about judgment, we assume our truth is right. And the moment we make that assumption, instead of truth being truth, and our interpretation of truth could be right or wrong, then we are less prone to make making those assumptions about people. You're listening to In Good Faith, today a panel discussion on us versus them, avoiding that kind of thinking. In Good Faith, we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Today we're having a panel discussion talking about avoiding us versus them thinking. And I have learned a lot already. Some things that I think I even said, I'll buy that bumper sticker if you make it for me. I would like to know how you pass on to your children the idea of respect for others in their differences. I think for myself, it starts right in the home. So if I love my wife, I respect my wife, and that's that already sets a precedent for my children, that there's, there is love and respect, and that goes a long way. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to make wrong choices. But for, I guess, as I have seven children, and they're a handful, they're very energetic, and but as they, they're growing up, they're, they love the Lord, they want to do what's right, and that's such a blessing to us. But for me, it is so important to keep their heart and to be there and to walk through the journey of life with them when they're struggling to be there and give them a listening ear, when they need to wrestle through the issues of life, that I'm there to help them wrestle through it, right? And you just and you you don't just say, go off, you're not worth anything. No, my children are worth a lot. They are an investment. I need to, even with all the ministry that I'm involved in and all the, the business I run and all that, even with all that, I still have to, I've come to a place where I see, look, I cannot neglect my children. They are so vital. It is so important. God has given me this gift. And it's, I, yeah, and as we, one way we do that as well, just on a practical level, we have family worship on a daily basis and you teach them, you, you share with them, you hear from them what stands out to you in this passage of scripture. Let's wrestle through it together and ask questions. It's not wrong to ask. We want you to ask questions, the hard questions. Let's just not, let's not just say, no, we shouldn't be asking those kinds of questions. Let's, if I don't have something in my faith that can actually answer that question, then I have a problem. I need to get to a place where we can actually ask those questions and come up with a good, solid answer that actually makes sense. And it's from there, we have a premise where our children, and again, it boils down to love. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. I think living... By example, 
And so being active in interfaith work and having my kids involved and taking them to the different services in our neighborhood, I made sure they were, the girls were in activity days and my son was in the Boy Scouts and my husband got roped in to be a scout leader. And I joined Relief Society and active in everything they do. So we build on the commonalities and if there's charity work or volunteering or anything that we work on in common, then we can do it regardless in who organized the event. So I think that's the best way to keep your kids grounded in their faith and in the love of others. I'm 11-year-old in this journey, so fairly new. But I think given my daughter Pari is a minority technically in her school, being the only Indian of Indian origin, she's born here, and also only Hindu, I think she's constantly exposed to various types of thinking in various levels. So we have very open discussions at home. And also she does her mantras in the morning. There's a scriptural book she reads. We talk about that. We talk about the relevance. And then it's always appealing to, and hopefully by example, my husband and I can impress upon her that you appeal to the individual person, their goodness, their who they are. And she's involved in doing a lemonade stand for five years now where she collects for various, the last time she was collecting for Ukraine and Uvalde, she raised over $1,500. Springville is a wonderful community. And I think that's been a way to to bring people together too. And so she understands at a young age that if you have something positive to share, do it. For do sure. it with good faith. <laughs> To use a pun. <laughs> so, yeah, by example, for sure. Yeah. So it sounds like I'm in the same ballpark as, as you three. And so I wonder if I can talk about an extension of my children, which is my students here, our youth and young adults. Because as you were talking, I thought of a couple of days ago, we were talking in class about Jewish practices of observing the Sabbath, and we were comparing it to our own. And there's some ancient... Jewish practices that seem to outsiders that seem this is really odd and silly can take so many steps or you can't build fires or you can't tear or destroy anything, for example. So fast forward a couple millennia and you have Jews today who they don't flip on a light switch because that's actually technically starting a fire or they won't on the Sabbath go into their bathroom and tear toilet paper. So what they do is they put timers on their lights or they pre-tear the toilet paper or get a box like that of, of tissues. You know, and uh, there's a, a woman, and I, I brought a little quote here from Blue Greenberg. She wrote a book called How to Run a Traditional Jewish Household. She says, to one who is completely unfamiliar with the law, it almost seems petty and silly to go su- to such lengths over such a little thing as throwing a light switch. But this is one of the many basic steps in creating that special aura of Shabbat. Preparing paper in advance seems so remote from holy time. The objective outsider might say, this is pure legalism and highly ridiculous. There's no work involved in tearing a piece of perforated toilet paper on the Sabbath. To which an insider might respond, look how clever the rabbis were. Even in as mundane a place as the bathroom, one is reminded of the uniqueness of the day. When I read that, my students heard a few audible gasps. And if you look at it from an insider's perspective, they're not thinking of legal minutia, habitual legal minutia. There's deep meaning to them. And so if we can tap into that, we might appreciate it. This is the kind of stuff, as my kids get older, I will be sharing with them. Sometimes on a game show, which we're not, (laughs) there will be a lightning round. And so these last two questions, I'd love to keep to a sentence or two. What you just mentioned, the welcoming of Shabbat honoring of the Sabbath. This is something that I have learned a lot from my Jewish friends. That's something I admire. I'd like to hear something maybe that we admire about a different faith other than ours. It's a different faith, but I admire how organized Relief Society is. They'll, they know who's sick in the neighborhood, who needs, who's having surgery, who's everything, and line up all the meals and line up the help needed. I just wish I can get our community to be as organized as they are. I have a few. So I love the concept of forgiveness in Christianity, the concept of submission and intent in Islam, and service in Buddhism, and community in, if I were to speak about the LDS faith, the concept of community. Never, ever felt I was not a part of it. 
Here's, I don't necessarily have one faith in, in mind other than one thing that stands out to me in, in other faiths is when you have people who are, they're sold out for it, dedicated, they're willing to put their life on the line. They're, that's When I see dedication like that, that is, that's just cha- a challenge to me just to see that, that these people really practice what they believe. Which I think is inspiring and motivating for our own faith. I really love, I love the legacy and tradition in both Judaism and Islam of this wrestle, this scholarship and debate, large texts like the Hadith or the Talmud, where there's this intense focus, intellectual even, on can we get it right? What does the law mean? What did Muhammad say? What did the rabbis say? And how do we understand this? And then there's, especially in, in Judaism, there's an intense debate. The rabbi said this, these other rabbis said this. How do we understand the law that was given to Moses? And I wish we had that a little bit more in my faith of a deep intellectual curiosity and an ability to debate without being scared that we're being contentious. <laughs> I love that. This is a kind of conversation I would love to continue just about any time. And I would do what Mesa said and involve food. I think that's what we're lacking here around this. <laughs> Tables right. are for food, right? I was at a prejudice <laughs> conference, and at the conference, they had all these big-time speakers, and then it was my turn to speak. And I said, you know what? You want to break prejudice? Just invite someone for a meal at your home, yes. and you will build that bond and friendship. Well, at the end of the conference, this total stranger walks up to me and says, we would like to invite your family over for dinner. And it really took us by surprise. And I told my husband, and my husband's like, no. I'm like, what do you mean no? He goes, I don't know who he is. I'm not taking my family to a whole stranger's home. I'm like, that's the whole point. We're going to build a relationship. Uh And so very hesitantly, we took our four kids, and they were young at the time, and we went to their home, and we had a wonderful dinner, and we forged a friendship. Mm -hmm. And it really is the way to build a community and a relationship. So I highly recommend it. (laughs) That's a good, let's end on that thought and carry it out in our lives. Thank you each, Prithalal, Mesa Kerge, Pastor Luke Miller, and Dr. Trevin Hatch. Thank you each for speaking with me today in good faith. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Leah King, Tanya Lockett, and Katarina Martinic. Our sound designers were Daniel Phillips and Dallin Jepson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, we hope you leave a comment or review where you get your podcast. Or better yet, share an episode with a friend. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod, on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.